Blog Talk Radio. charge into a $10 million profit and then shut down a news organization to boot? Our first guest says yes, it's happening right now in New York. Plus, the SEC settles with banks that commit crimes, but nobody goes to jail. And the taxpayers pay the fines? Unbelievable. Dave Johnson tells us about it in hour two. It's all here today in Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan in California, co-hosting with my friend and colleague Chuck Morris. He's in Boston. We're broadcasting Monday through Friday at 1 p.m. on CyberStation USA Network, the Blog Talk Radio Network, and our radio affiliates. It's April 16th, the 100th anniversary of the Titanic sinking and the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And we are pushing the boundaries of radio here. We're listening to voices from all sides of the issues of the day. And let me introduce you to my friend and colleague, our co-host, Chuck Morris. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Patrick. How are you? Oh, except for the slight little catch in my throat. Okay, not bad. The the sun's back. It stopped raining, and your book is out. What could be better? It is. <laughs> it is out. And, um, you know, I could tell you between you and I that I'm as I study it, I'm disappointed with certain things about it, and I'm hoping that they can be corrected for the, um, you know, as, as things go forward. There are some terrible typos in it, Ooh. and they're not things that I did either. I mean, it took them almost a year to come out with this book, and they got some awful, embarrassing, blatant typos that I just uh, makes my hair stand on end. And, but and, and uh, you know, get, getting your hair to stand on end is no mean feat. Well, exactly, my comb <laughs> over—it's like a, it goes a mile up. And, and also, I think they actually did a few. They tried to play a few tricks with some of the um, the, the the sentence structure and the, and some even perhaps a little bit of the content. And they made a mess of things. Oh. So it, it's okay, though. I'm moving forward with it. You know, I'm afraid to say anything right now because it, it, they'll take it off, and then it'll take another year for them to, to make these little corrections. So I'm forging forward, and I'm viewing it as a vehicle for me to to get up and, and talk about things on, on other shows. And, you know, it, it gets the basics across. So I urge people to get it. And I, I am working on a revised manuscript, which – once things are on, you know, are underway, and it's too late for them to change any, to turn back, then I'm going to insist that they replace this manuscript with a better manuscript, one that I actually wrote, for one thing. Well, it, <laughs> yeah, right. It, it, it's also out in electronic form too, isn't it? It is. It's out as an ebook. Yep. Okay. And um, well, of course, you've been watching the uh, what's going on with the pricing on ebooks, haven't you? Yes, it's a, and it's an issue in that smaller publishing houses like mine are actually protesting uh, Amazon because the margin is too thin. Yeah. And Amazon, which is the big player, they're 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 standing you know strong against any change in the in the present status of it. So, I actually think that because of that, the book is probably not available on Amazon ebook. It is available on as a Nook though on Barnes and Noble. Okay. And it's available in other formats, but I think the Kindle, right now, it's restricted, not only in my book, but on the, uh, the on most of these smaller publishing houses are not 
participating. Yeah, that, that's too bad because the small publishing houses are frequently put out some very, very interesting books. Well, for yes. our audience, uh, the book is The Wig Manifesto, and it's by... A Wig Manifesto. A Wig, thank you. A Wig yeah. Manifesto, and it's by our own uh, Chuck Morse, and it's available in fine online bookstores everywhere and in um, on the street bookstores too, right, Chuck? Well, so I don't know if it's quite made its way to the street yet, but it's on its way. If you ask your local bookstore for it, they'll get it. Okay, well, you should ask your local bookstore, for, uh, and we'll get it. Maybe maybe next week we can interview you about the book? Sure. Okay, all right, we'll do that. Um, I, I think I think as we interview enough authors here, we ought to interview ourselves when we publish a book, too. Why and not? Also, what the heck? It give our 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 audience a, an opportunity to learn more about the the Whigs and the Whig Party and and where they stand today and and all that. Right now, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to uh, welcome in our radio affiliate. So we're going to do some station ID and we'll be right back. Listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates, who I'm now going to welcome in. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan, and I'm welcoming our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay and KSKQ FM in Ashland, Oregon. I'm co-hosting today's edition of Fairness Radio from Los Angeles. Chuck Morse is in Boston, and you can join us by email at fairnessradio at gmail.com, um, or you can call us, 424-675-6806. We've got a, a good show lined up for you today. We're going to talk about banks today. Uh, this is this is not ba- a banking holiday, but it's sort of Bank Monday. We're in the hour one, we're going to have a guest to talk to us about a strange situation in New York in which a charge of bank fraud against one bank is uh, seems to give them the opportunity to make a $10 million profit and throw a news organization out of its building. Very strange yeah. situation. And in hour two, our own uh, Dave Johnson will be with us and talk about these very strange SEC settlements with banks in which nobody goes to jail and the taxpayers pay the fine. I haven't gotten that one yet. We'll find out. So anyway, uh, this segment is brought to you by uh, Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com, your place for information on how to manage your health without drugs and other expensive um, means. Well, Chuck, it's um, a brand new week and uh, I'm as I as we were talking earlier, I'm 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 doing pretty well. I I did a uh, bike ride this week uh, this weekend up to the uh, observatory in uh, Griffith Park, which actually mm-hmm. turned out not to be that bad and it was a beautiful day. You could see all of Los Angeles. And this is a huge city as you well know. Good. So it was a good day. Nice. I like yeah. Griffith Park. I, I remember going there with when my daughter was uh, very young. They've got nice uh, little pony amusements, and it's a good place. Yep, very much so. Well, the uh, um, the, the campaigns are off and running. We're going to the uh, fundraising uh, reports are in. I see that uh, Barack Obama raised fifty three million dollars uh, in the last uh, fundraising period. I didn't catch Romney's. Did you see how much Romney raised? Uh, no, but he's doing. He's pretty good at that, you know. Patrick, there's kind of a slightly humorous post on um, 
Red State. I don't know if you follow them. Oh, I look at them um, occasionally, yes. <laughs> breaking news. David Axelrod endorses Mitt Romney for president. Did you see this? No, that must be humorous. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me read it to you. Who, who David Axelrod is. <laughs> David Axelrod is President Obama's chief uh, media advisor, I think. Yeah. Strategist, you yeah. might say. Yeah. This is uh, David Axelrod, chief strategist for President Barack Obama, endorsed Mitt Romney for president on Fox News this past Sunday. He told Chris Wallace, quote, the choice in this election is between an economy that produces a growing middle class and that gives people a chance to get ahead and their kids a chance to get ahead and an economy that continues down the road we're on, unquote. I say to uh, David Axelrod, he is exactly right. <laughs> Something tells me that David is uh, removing his foot from his mouth as we speak. I don't think that's what he quite meant to say. <laughs> yeah, but it's making the rounds, and it's funny. I'll bet. It really is. I, I, I imagine he got beat up pretty badly in the White House when he got back. Actually, you know, um, as we've discussed in the past, Michael Kinsley said a, uh, a politician uh, – a gap is when a politician tells the truth, and of course, in this time, a gap is when a politician um, didn't tell the truth, but it made it sound like the truth. Uh, oh, well, that's, that's, well, that's what you say. I think it exactly describes it, but of course, I would say that, right? Yeah, you would, and, and he wouldn't, yeah. but uh, there have been a lot of gaps lately. Uh, I, True. On, on all various sides, and, and I think that in addition to being the most expensive campaign we've ever seen and probably the dirtiest campaign we've ever seen, it's probably going to be one of the funniest we've ever seen, too. But there was one gaffe that I think actually has probably inadvertently served to really galvanize Barack Obama's base. Oh, and yeah. by, by base, I mean people like you, Patrick, okay. people who want the president to be further out on the left. Yeah, And that nice. was – right. Exactly. Being a conservative. <laughs> and and that was his comment to uh which of course he did not say for public consumption, but it was his comment to Russian Prime Minister Medvedev when he said that um regarding missile negotiations, wait till after the election and I'll have more flexibility. Now that sends a message to his base, to his left wing base. In other words, don't pay any attention to what I'm saying now because I have to Kiss the backside of conservatives and you know the, the 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 middle of the road. After the election, we'll have a whole new deal. I think that that's how it's being taken. You know, the, you know, I know he didn't mean it that way, and I know he didn't even want that to be heard. But that's what that is. I mean, and also, I think that Charles Krauthammer, who I you you would say also is a pretty pretty solid uh, political commentator. I mean, yeah, I know he's conservative. I don't, I don't agree with him, but he's he's pretty good. He brought he wrote a column about this where he asked the question exactly what is it that he's going to be offering the Russians at all when it comes to America's missile de missile defense he points out that this is one of the only areas at this point where America has military superiority and that if we're going to negotiate a reduction in nuclear uh weapons then we're going to need a missile technology more than ever and uh, that we've already given the Russians all kinds of benefits, which he goes into in, in his column. It's very interesting. What in the world are we going to be doing in terms of dealing with the missile, any compromise on our missile stature? Anyways, well, he, he brings that up. 
Yeah, and, and you know, the, this, this whole thing has been kind of confused. The, the conversation and, and the meeting they were at wasn't actually about reducing the number of missiles on either side. It was about, right. uh, it was, it was about taking warheads out of missiles that had already been decommissioned according to an earlier treaty and then how, how to best dispose of those warheads so that they wouldn't make that HEU and that plutonium available. It had nothing to do with our, our defense posture at all. But um, because of intransigence by the Republicans uh, against anything that sounds like anything that might possibly reduce the amount of nuclear weapons we have, uh, he knew that he was going to have to wait until after the, uh, after the elections just, just, just in order to get rid of the plutonium and the HEU out of missiles that have already been decommissioned. The whole thing was sort of ridiculous. Um, and actually, you know, on the left, we really didn't care. It actually didn't well, send any signals that, to the, us. The issue in the broad sense for the left, and Krauthammer says that the issue of any kind of missile negotiation has nothing to do with nuclear reductions, which, which he supports on both yeah. sides. This is more to do with America's missile superiority, our ability to deliver um, weapons, not the weapons themselves. Um, I say that it, it, could, it galvanizes his base because it kind of gives the nod that don't pay much attention to positions I'm taking now, once I'm elected, I'm going to be more flexible, which I think that people on the left are hoping at least, and probably for reason, for good reason, means he's going to go to the left. Well, we certainly hope so, yeah. Uh, right. I don't know if he is or not. It'll depend on the Congress. But uh, that really didn't pop up too much on our radar screen. I mean, there were tons of uh, posts on Daily Kos and Brad and Bright, uh, uh, Brad's blog and places like that. I don't know, you can ask Dave when he comes on an hour or two. But sure. um, uh, it just went right by the Republicans. This has nothing to do with the number of missiles. It has to do with keeping fissionable material out of hands of terrorists. That, uh, well, again, uh, Krauthammer says this has nothing to do with fissionable material. He's, he supports that. He says it has everything to do with our missile technologies, which the Russians are concerned about because that's the one area where we do have somewhat of an edge, not just with regard to Russia, but regard to our posture in the world, and that he points out that we have to preserve that. There's nothing to negotiate with that, because if we're going to give that away, then it kind of it puts us in a worse position when it comes time to negotiate over nuclear reductions, which everybody supports. Yeah. Well, That's actually, what Proudhammer had to say about it. I mean, it's not – and I think that, as I said, he's a fairly sober analysis, yeah. analyst of, of the passing scene. He, he was actually referring to the, the part of that negotiation having to do with the anti-missile shield in which the United States wants to put um, anti-missile missiles in various places around the Soviet Union but aiming them at Iran. And the Fine. Soviet Union doesn't want them there because it doesn't believe we're aiming them at Iran. Um, and that just kind of reached an impasse. And, uh, yeah, there will be more flexibility afterwards. But, again, there will be if Obama's elected. Well, yeah. And if not, then maybe we won't get a missile shield aimed at Iran, and that's too bad. We well, have I don't know what we'll break get. But... And uh, welcome in our next guest. So uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back.
You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Radio Network, and our radio station affiliates. And this segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing, your source of information on how to manage your health and your body without resorting to expensive or possibly toxic drugs. When you go to Barton Publishing, don't forget to put fairness in the coupon code and you'll get a 50% discount. That's Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com. We're back, and don't forget that you can uh, email in your questions or call in your questions. Your email uh, address is fairnessradio at gmail.com. You can call us at 424-675-6806, and we love to hear your voices. Well, in a complicated series of legal moves, uh, MB Bank of Chicago thinks it has found a way to turn a potential fraud charge against its officers into a $10 million profit and in the process closed down a widely used international news organization. The plot has many twists and turns, and it's, but it's become a poster boy for what's wrong with enforcement of banking laws in this country. Lenny Charles, founder and director of the Independent News Network, the organization that finds itself in the middle of a mess it had nothing to do with, is with us today to explain it. Lenny, welcome to Fairness Radio. Well, thank you, and, and let me say first, it's the International News Net. When you take in an acronym in three letters, anything can go wrong. It's the International News Net, not network, but that's okay. That's right, and I should know because I've got it sitting here looking at me on the computer. My apologies. Did, did I get the explanation more or less correct? Yes, that, 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 you, you kind of have it. They're, they're really trying to take bank fraud and a whole bunch of stuff that's wrong with this paperwork and trying to, in the light of day, uh, push it through the bankruptcy court, rubber stamp a foreclosure, seize the building, and we hit the streets at the same time. It's not a pretty story. Well, why don't we start at the be- beginning and you tell our listeners what kind of the background is <clears throat> and where we, and, and how this has all developed. One of INN's board members bought this building. It's a six-story uh, six loft building in Tribeca. It's very common to convert these into luxury condos, which was his plan and one of the uses of that money was going to be to pay off the note it would take to uh, do the conversion and to support INN. So he gave us a sweetheart lease for the bottom three floors of the building, which include an event space seating about 100 people, bar restaurant space in the basement, and the TV studio on the second floor. As you may have mentioned, we're the evening news on free speech TV for many years. But let's, get, let's focus more on the loan. So one of our board members, very generous, gave us a sweetheart lease for this, and we've been, you know, doing INN since about 2000, about 2002, 2003, right in that area. We are a not-for-profit, and we've been the evening news on Free Speech TV and top of the air radio news for dozens of stations. In 2007, we needed to refinance to finish the job, and a loan broker brought us a group called Wex Trust Capital. They arranged the loan and brought in a partner bank, Broadway Bank of Chicago. A little bit about each of these. Wex Trust Capital was insolvent at the time. One of the members, one of the owners, was wearing a wire, and the other two, whose signatures appear on our loan contract, are sitting in jail for a long time, sentenced by Judge Denny Chin, the same judge who sentenced Bernie Madoff to a long time. Okay, one of them, uh, a guy named Joe Sherevetsky, had, had been involved in bank fraud several years before that. So these are known criminals. Okay, well, they enticed us into this loan. We signed on to the loan. They brought in a partner bank. Broadway Bank. They withheld money during the course of the loan. The construction was never completed, and the building was going into default pretty fast. 
the partner bank, Broadway Bank, part of the joint venture loan, began foreclosure at about the time, or they began default foreclosure. The early proceedings about the time the loan expired, the building was not completed. At that time, the SEC closed down Wextrust Capital. Wextrust Capital closed them down, seized all their assets, discovered that they had been insolvent, all their funds were commingled, and they were running a $270 million Ponzi scheme. Our loan was being had been created and originated by a company that never had the money to serve it. And you had so no idea of this. this well, how could we? Yeah, right. I okay. mean, we think we were involved with Broadway Bank of Chicago, big company, you know, national bank. They certainly wouldn't be involved with a bunch of fraudsters, or would yeah. they? Yeah. That becomes the question right here. So anyway, Wex Trust gets closed down. Everything is seized. The investigate the company doing investigation, Deloitte out of Chicago, also made a statement that everything was commingled. You couldn't tell one penny that came in and one penny that came out just because of the way they were doing business. Sweep accounts, they called them at the time. So you think, okay, this kind of went sour. We go to Broadway Bank, who held the larger portion of the note, and said, hey, this whole thing got screwed up. Can we at least adjust? Can we refinance? Can we do something to make it work? Their answer was, we're beginning, beginning foreclosure. We want all our money. Well, little did we know. Anyway, just to complete the West Trust part of it, we went to the SEC not long after that that admitted to our attorneys at the time that we had been the victim of the West Trust Ponzi scheme. Moving on to Broadway Bank, they held the note. They were pressing foreclosure in the local state court. We were defending pretty good with all our counterclaims of fraud and withheld money and everything else. In the middle of all this, I believe it was almost two years ago now, the FDIC closed down Broadway Bank about the time that one of the uh, owners of the bank, or former owner and director of the bank, Alexei Giannoulis of Chicago, was running for Barack Obama's Senate seat against Senator Kirk. Well, they were having, the bank was under investigation by the FDIC, so they had their own problems and were finding out more and more how deep those problems were. Their problems were using brokered investments, I mean, brokered deposits and uh, risky out-of-state loans, which ours actually, I believe, fell into the category of. But anyway, the FDIC closes them down at the time because they agreed to be closed down because all this negative press for doing things like making loans to Tony Resco and other little problems. The FDIC closed these guys down, sold all of their assets over to MB Financial. Then, it, then, then the trouble really begins at this point. That's how strange it is. MB Financial was actually founded. It was a merger of two banks. One of those banks, the large, was actually founded by our board member's grandfather. So we figured, okay, we'll go to these guys. We'll make a deal. We'll settle this. We understand there's been problems. Let's just continue with our lives. They go, no. They hire a very high-priced legal team to go ahead and start attacking us, attacking the INM lease and pressing for summary judgment in the state court. We had to file for bankruptcy, okay, and, and we ended up in bankruptcy court. But as they, just to show you how weird it gets, the loan was not only created fraudulently by a company that was insolvent, monies were withheld to complete the construction project, causing it to fail, and the transfer of the paperwork from Broadway Bank to MB was not only robo-signed, not only backdated by six months, <laughs> There was a false notary, so you've got three things going for you here. You figure, okay, this is we can we can beat this, except for now we're in bankruptcy court. Oh my God! This, the banks, uh, this is they were at the, the end of the story. We're at, we're at oh, the no. point of the story where we okay. can jump off now. Okay, in bankruptcy court, the judge appoints a Chapter 11 trustee to investigate our claims 
against the bank. Not a, the Chapter 11 trustee, her answer is, pay the bank their money. We're not going to investigate. The judge asked her to investigate and liquidate the assets and pay off the creditors, and you people can go somewhere else away from here, away from the building. So that's where it sits today. In the light of day, they're trying to use unquestionably bad paper that was not correctly transferred in any way, shape, or form to take to basically get a $20 million payday in a building that's and, and a beautiful building I, that we renovated. INN has attorneys, and it has connections, and you can't deal with it. It's it, it, no wonder the average homeowner who finds himself or herself being foreclosed by fraudulently robo-signed documents can't, can't get anywhere either. This is an amazing story. And uh, I guess my first question is, why didn't the SEC just come in and say, wait a minute, there's a whole string of, of crimes going on here. We're going to prosecute those of you, and we're going to stop any foreclosure. That seems to be it would have been the right thing to do. You'd think, but as you deal with uh, the bureaucracy of each of these government agencies, that uh, it's not saying much for government bureaucracy. Their their goal, when they had the initial, there was a little money left in West Trust account. They had an, uh, a receiver appointed, a guy named Timothy Coleman out of Washington, D.C. He immediately ran up a $30 million bill for his company to investigate. Well, that took care of the rest of the money. Their original job was to try to get money back for the investors in a Ponzi scheme. You say, listen, we're going to invest in this property. We need your money. We're going to return so many percent. We're going to put it in a segregated account, and you'll be given dividends on the schedule. Well, they didn't do any of that. They just commingled the money and basically robbed the Coke machine to make payroll every every month. They had formed hundreds of deals all across the country, technically formed hundreds of bank accounts for each of these separate deals, and all of it were not only defrauding the investors, which is what the SEC was charged in investigating, but they also defrauded many of the people that took out the loans. And well, we were one of the last loans they did, so they they didn't have the money. They actually withheld the money they promised us. Well, Lenny, Lenny, isn't there anyone in the, the federal government whose job it is, or any agency whose job it is to protect people like you, innocents who took out a loan from what you thought was a major bank and then find yourself in this mess and about to lose your building and have your news your news organization shut down. Isn't there anyone whose job it is to protect ordinary people? Great question. Hopefully some caller will call in and say, I know the guy to call, and we'll call. <laughs> <laughs> we will do anything we can at this point to try to save the, save the fort, so to speak. And, and the other question is, has anybody gone to jail? Well, the, the, the two original guys, Sharvetsky and Byers, from the West Trust scale have gone to jail, and now there's an FDIC investigation onto the interactions between MB Financial and Broadway Bank that gave them the note, concerning many notes, not just this one. But in the world of modern banking, that's just business as usual. Uh, well, it shouldn't be. Uh, let me introduce you to my, uh, my co-host, uh, Chuck Morris. Chuck? Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for joining us, Lenny. It just well, sounds Patrick, like a... A very complicated and, and convoluted story. I'm sorry to hear about it. I mean, I would imagine that the one person that you probably would not be able to go to on this would be Attorney General Eric Holder, because he uh, used to work for Covington and Burling, which was a law firm that represented MERS, and that is the organization that's involved nationally. In fact, the only one in all of these robo signings. Um, I don't know if you know only, that. I, I have to interrupt you. Covington and Burling is also the agency that the new trustee works for that wants uh -huh. to seize the building and take it away. So I think it's 
very incestuous. Well, I'm glad that you yeah, brought up Yeah, isn't that, that interesting? And, and Eric Holder was a partner and founder of this group. And um, now that he's attorney general, after three years of doing nothing, finally the 60 Minutes did a piece on the robo-signing. So what he did was he assigned a special group to investigate made up of former uh, Covington and Burling lawyers. So I'm not sure you're going to get much action there. And then, of course, uh, he also asked the FBI to work with a banking investigating firm or a private banking firm that's very much a part of this as well. So they're kind of controlled, the MBA, that being, the uh, more, uh, which uh, to look into mortgage fraud. So it's kind of like, uh, I, I mean, to me it looks like just a cover-up. Uh, you're not going to get any action on the federal level. But we um, can get, it's interesting, I can say one good thing. The judge we have, and I don't want to mention his name, believe it or not, he's a conservative, but he's a very fair man, and he's given us, he's bent over backwards to give us every chance to prove our case until he appointed someone from Covington. <laughs> and yeah, so, right. I mean, and I would, want, say, I would say more than believe it or not, I think that it's probably the conservatives that would be the more likely people to help out in this one because, on the other hand, you also have the Chicago Bank that's linked with Tony Resco, and he's an old friend of President Obama's, so who gave President Obama apparently a very a, a sweetheart deal on a mortgage on his house. So, you know, there's some, this, is an, this is really a situation of major corruption and major cover-up. And um, I don't know what uh, – you mentioned Bernie Madoff uh, having a hand in this. What's the deal with that? No, he didn't, he didn't have a hand in it. Uh, there's, I guess he's an appellate judge now. The guy's name is Denny Chin, and he was in uh, a state – I believe it was uh, – he was, he was the federal court judge, or maybe he was the state Supreme Court. I, you have to excuse me. I'm not having my facts clear. He was the mm -hmm. one that sentenced Bernie Madoff to a whole long time in jail. He's the right. same because he, he started getting some experience in these uh, Ponzi scheme situations. He was the same judge that Cherevesky and Byers and the Wex Trust scandal. He's the same one that sentenced them. So he's kind of like got his chops up on this stuff, and he's he's being tough, at least on his level. We actually tried to get in front of Denny Chin with our problem, but I, I believe he was already had been appointed to a higher court by Barack Obama and uh, was not available for this. Right. In other words, he was taken out of action. Uh, boy, I mean, it's really a, this is a huge corruption scandal. I, I I don't know what to say about it. I mean, obviously we we at this radio program aren't in a position to comment on it, um, other than to uh, I guess ask you in a practical sense, what are you doing to protect your business? It's not much of a business at this point. Uh, INN, unlike INN, is well, I guess we're more progressive. We we tried to be a healthy combination between libertarians and progressives, kind of common sense from both ends of it, not prejudicing ourselves one way or the other. But we didn't use uh, the model of begging, I want to say. We didn't really rely uh, that much on donations. We relied instead on using the bottom floors of the building as part of INN's lease to rent out for events, to hold community events, even music shows, art shows, conferences, national lawyers gigs. We even had Occupy Wall Street down there. But we used the income from renting that space out to staff INN and to pay INN and to pay for the broadcast. Well, now mm -hmm. that all this is under a cloud, nobody will rent the space because they kind of know from the New York Times article that we we don't know how, how long we're going to be here, so we have no income. So we had to stop doing the broadcast several weeks back. How oh, to boy. protect our business? Well, it, let's just say it's put us out of business. We're not 
you know, we're uh, we're in hiatus. We're not. Uh, we haven't closed the book yet, but it's it, it's a mess. We need to. Uh, we have a, a small, dedicated staff. They do the best they can, and they work for almost nothing. But they got to get something. This is New York, and you have to eat and pay your rent. Of course. Now, so what about the guy that you? I'm sorry. You have this guy, this partner at your company, International Newsnet, that um, helped procure the original real estate deal for you. What is his hand on this? I mean, what does he uh, say about it? He's looking for the next tank of gas for his Jeep. Oh, boy. This whole mess, mess, you know, we've ended up putting over a quarter of a million dollars into legal fees trying to defend this and fight this off at this point. He's, uh, this has pretty much taken its toll on him. He's got a great attitude about it, but this this was uh, he wasn't a major investor. He doesn't own that many properties. Right. He's, he's got a he's got a very good moral compass, and he really liked what we were doing, and he thought it was important that we do it, and he supported us the best he could. But this is really taking its toll on him. You must what, pay what's happening for the property right now? I mean, is it? I'm is sitting in there. it. And nobody... thirty minutes, there's a new property manager on the way over. I'm yeah. no longer going to help manage the property, and the INN's lease is being challenged. They, the uh, one communique I got from the new trustee working for Covington was that we're going to hire a special attorney to break your lease and uh, uh, get you out of the building because when we sell the property, it's going to be worth more without you inside of it. That's the only thing we heard out of her, and that wasn't the email I wanted, but uh, this is reality. It is New York right now. Well, I mean, I you know, what can I say? I mean, we you know, the only uh, the only thing you might get some mileage out of would be to maybe send a public letter to Attorney General Eric Holder, who was a former partner in Covington and Burling, and um, you know, it would might embarrass him enough to maybe do something to at least stave it off. Well, yeah, we have we're going to do everything. One thing we're doing right now is screaming as loud as we can from the rooftops, especially those that have radio transmitters on them. And, <laughs> sure. Uh, the other thing yeah, we're well, going to do good. is we're going to have a, a letter writing. We, you know, yes, it's our problem, but I think this is indicative that they're not doing it behind closed doors now. They're they're basically, uh, you know, going forth with bank fraud in the light of day, and that's what's even more frightening, you know, that than than just a little deal that that's happening to a poor retired couple that doesn't have the money to fight it. We have the money to fight it. We borrowed the money just to see that we could you know, make this right any way that we could. And this is going to happen in the light of day if it happens or it's not going to happen. We're hoping the judge is going to stick to his word, investigating our claims, and then we'll accept the result of that investigation. But right now, the attorney uh, from Covington, the point is the trustee, does not seem inclined to hold that investigation that even the judge wanted. So this no, of is course kind of not. a mess. They're, running, they're doing a cover-up. I, look, I mean, you're, you're, you're trying to get publicity for this, and rightfully... Uh, I would bring out, emphasize the connection between Covington and Burling and this MERS, which is the robo-signing company that's doing millions of these transactions nationally, and which is at the very heart of the scandal, and how uh, Attorney General Holder, who's a partner at Covington and Burling before becoming Attorney General, ran uh, interference. Now, my information on this comes from a left-wing source, that being the radio broadcast Ring of Fire. I mean, this isn't some uh, conservative thing. They uh, they had an expert mortgage guy on the program who spoke kind of sotto voce, but he revealed the situation. Of course, he said it under the context that, well, we still have to vote for Obama, of course. But he, he said it chagrined him to mention this issue, and it's out there. 
it's a, it's an issue in which this particular law firm is cover is basically been hired to sort of fix this problem, and they're doing it without any uh, you know with basically uh, the attorney general's office turning a blind eye. I, I wonder uh, on on that um, since this is commercial property, was MERS involved in the robo signing? They usually are are residential uh, uh, signers. No, I don't believe MERS was involved, but yeah. the FDIC uh, did the transaction, I believe it was, uh, April 21st, uh, uh, 2010, and then not until August did they assign the notes and the deeds over to, uh, 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 over from Broadway Bank over to MB. MB, the FDIC assigned them over. They did it six months afterwards, showing a huge gap in the chain of title. They, The signature on there is of well, one of the people from the bank, and we've got his original signature from that we were able to find from another court case. They uh, gave us some of their information from Discovery, and that's not his signature. And the Chicago notary isn't good in New York, and you've got a six-month gap. That in itself should uh, send them from being a secured creditor or trying to drop the... I would think uh, so. You think so, but... Uh, yeah, we have a couple of emails. Our grows. We have a couple of emails for you. Uh, one is Billy Johnson in Seattle wants to know, can you sue the SEC or anyone else in the federal government to make them enforce the laws that they should have enforced originally? I'm not sure. I'm not an attorney, although I spend more time with him than I'd like to. Uh, I believe all you can do is appeal up to the next court. There is an appeal process. And you can sometimes get a stay of execution, although in this case it's the execution of having your building sold, but I believe that's an option. Okay. Um, Bonnie um, Sylvan in Los Angeles, um, can you move and get back on the air while you fight this? If I could pay my staff, they want to go back on the air. They've been in touch with me, and a lot of the stations that were using the broadcast, we just don't have the money. And we're, you know, I mean, people could come forward and help us, but it would, we're, you know, it would be a great gesture. But we're not out there, you know, begging. We think we'd rather solve the problem. But if if somebody out there with the money wants us to get back on the air, we're a cheap date, and we'd love to keep doing it. In the meantime, we've got all our broadcast equipment, the studio still set up. We'd love to get back on the air. Well, I I wish you luck. We're we're out of time now, um, Lenny. I. If, if, I, if our listeners want to follow this, can they follow this at um, www.innworldreport.net, or is there a better site? There, well, there's a better place to email us. We're thinking of starting a letter-writing campaign to Covington saying, look, the judge, judge asked you to investigate. Now investigate already. The best way to reach me and to reach us about this topic is innworldreport at Gmail. And I answer all the emails, and I'd love to hear from people that have uh, – the show and get comments on it. It would be great. Okay, that's innworldreport at gmail, and um, you can email our guest, Charles, uh, Lenny Charles, and ask him how you can help see to it that uh, he gets back on the air and we get the uh, the alternative news that we all deserve and love, and that this uh, tragedy gets righted and the right people get punished and the wrong people don't. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Lenny. And also, I'd, I'd, I'd urge people maybe to consider CCing Eric Holder on that. Yeah, good idea. If I could get his email, I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay, thank, thank you. you. We're going to take a take quick care, break, and we'll be right back. Stay with us. you listen to Fairness Radio.
And we're back. It's uh, you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. And uh, we it's Monday, April 16th, and we've been talking to uh, Lenny Charles, who's the founder and director of uh, INN, the International News Network, which has been caught in a legal mess, not of its making, which may result in it losing its building. It's currently off of the air because of it, and it just to me, this is a poster boy for what's the matter with enforcement. Um, Chuck, you brought up—you know—I have to agree with you, Chuck. You brought up some very good points. The, the involvement of uh, of um, Burlington in this, and uh, yeah, and the, MERS. And well, uh, I don't think MERS was involved in this because this was commercial, and MERS just does um, um, uh, residential. Where did you get that information, Patrick? It's been floating around, and I can check on that. Um, and that's and why I, I ask you only because I, I don't have. I mean, I was w- w- when you said it, I started to do some research on it, and I just uh, entered Google MERS and robo signing, and there's there's hundreds of articles oh, about yeah. them. They're, they're the major player in the whole robo signing scandal. They they've conducted millions of transactions, not just robo signing either, but yeah. other. Uh, you know, they've worked directly for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I mean, they've done. A lot of these sort of securitization, um, uniformal, uh, you know, processing issues, where instead of having a person involved in in the process, it's all done by these computers. And I don't see any evidence to suggest that they've just done private residential mortgages. I think they do all of it. I think that, and they've been around for a long time. I mean, this is not uh, this is a major agency. If you a uh, private look- company. Um, and again, I don't know this for a fact. I asked uh, our guest, and he said that as far as he knew, MERS wasn't involved. But if you go to the uh, MERS website and you look at MERS commercial, it's um, it's aimed at the multifamily marketplace, not at the commercial office building. I don't see anything in their information here that says that they they work with office buildings. They well, I don't. I, we do. We don't really know that. And and uh, you know, it's it's one of these companies that. You don't even necessarily know they're involved in the transaction. I mean, the bank has their name on the transaction. They hire MERS and the big banks in particular to sort of make the, you know, to to bring it from point A to point B, uh, you know, to do the sort of the actual nuts and bolts of the transactions, and they do it through these computer, um, mm-hmm. you know, modalities, including the robo signing. That's what they do. So. You know, they, they probably could be involved and likely are involved, but you don't see their name on it. You see the name of the bank. They're, they serve as sort of a subcontractor, although, according to what I'm looking at here, they are directly involved in foreclosures around the oh, country. Yeah. Yeah, but, and uh, they're being sued by, by, by well, it looks like, at least a dozen states. Everybody and these, and, them is. <laughs> and these lawsuits go back before, you know, to the Bush administration yeah. when Eric Holder was a partner at, uh, at this Burling and Covington, and, they were, and they're the chief lawyer defending uh, MERS. So, well, I, I mean, that's that. Their own information indicates that their commercial division only deals in multifamily apartment buildings and condos. Now, if you have other information, that's fine, but it really doesn't matter, frankly, right. in this particular case. But that's what they say they do. So if you know differently, maybe you should point us to a website or someplace that says differently. Well, I mean, I'm doing the research now, Patrick, and it's a lot. There's, there's huge. Uh, there's a, a lot of information about this scandal. 
Um, and it's been this scandal, which I mean, the scandal we I mean, I'm talking about the MERS robo signing scandal. I mean, I, it's too much for me to get into while we're trying to do this broadcast. So, I mean, I, I you know, I, I did write an article about it, which is posted, of course, on our own uh, Fairness Radio website, that being the Obama foreclosure scandal. Right. But, um, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we, you know, we, I, I don't even th- – I think that with all the information out there, and there's a lot, and it's all over the place. It's in all – you know, it's – as I said, it's, in, it's going on in at least a dozen states. Martha Coakley here in Massachusetts, I see something right here. She's oh, yeah. filing a lawsuit against Mirrors. I, I mean, it's this is Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's a big, them. big topic, and I can't possibly answer, you know, to it, or, nor can you – about what's what's you know where they have their tentacles, but uh, there hasn't been much there hasn't been much action on the federal level in terms of looking into this for reasons that I that I just mentioned. Yeah, no, I understand. I'm not I'm not trying to protect them at all. Just for the sake of accuracy, we we have no evidence that there was MERS involvement in this particular case, and MERS the services that MERS says it offers does not include office buildings. Okay. Okay. Right. That's, that's, yeah, we'll see. Right, that, but that doesn't excuse them at all. You're right that they are one of the the worst offenders in all of this. And uh, you know, I don't know if you if you've ever looked at um, the International News Network. It's a very very uh, progressive. Um, and yeah, it's also- I, t- I took a quick look at it. Yeah. You know, and in fact, you might have heard the noise in the background when I did. No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, one of those. Yeah, I, I logged on to it. It's one of those things that immediately gives you sound. <laughs> and it sounds like they've been screwed. I mean, it's yeah. it's a very it's a sad situation. They got caught between a bank that's dealing double dealing in Chicago, for God's sakes, with uh, Tony Resco, who's a convicted criminal, and uh, and then they've got this robo signing, and they've got other things. I don't know if it's that you know you know these guys uh, just got caught up and ensnared in in this mess, or maybe they should have done some more due diligence. I have no idea, but it's too bad. It sounds like they they invested a lot of money. He said a quarter of a million dollars in the studio, and then they invested another quarter of a million dollars in in defending it. So it's it's a very bad situation. I mean, I feel very bad for them. And, and I, I do too. And I I agree with you that people should uh, send copies of their letters to the attorney general. And to me, again, this is a poster boy for why enforcement against banks doesn't work. We're actually going to talk about that in an hour or two. And you're right. exactly right. The uh, the attorney general should be in there with uh, feet first, and we've had to rely on state attorney generals to do that. And and it seems like nobody goes to jail. You can you can pull all this kind of stuff off. Well, Maddox, Maddox went to jail, but other than that, nobody seems to go to jail. And that well, really bothers I mean, me. If they you should be in a candy bar. You go to jail, but if you steal millions of homes, you don't. And, and they should be starting with MERS. I mean, this is uh, you know, I, you know, Attorney General Holder. I mean, look, in my opinion, he seems to have some. There are two types of attorney generals. There are the types that are really going out there and prosecuting criminals. And I think that a, a classic example of that would have been Robert Kennedy. You know, he, the way he went after the mob, and right, you know, he yeah. didn't. You know, it, he he had them picked up for for chewing gum. You know, I mean, he just found. Or you have the type that runs interference for their boss or for their friends. The, the the classic example of that would be John Mitchell during the Clinton, during the Nixon administration. He kind of protected his president, and he you know he his job was there. I think Janet Reno is another one of those types, and it seems like Eric Holder is of that cloth. He is there running protection for his friends at this law firm, and you know he's not really he does not appear to be really going out and investigating 
what has to be viewed as classic national crimes. And this robo-signing scandal is something that you would think conventionally a federal attorney general would be going after. He's not doing it, and we know there's a connection. Well, we... We don't know there's a connection. We think there's a connection. Well, no, there is a connection. He's a former partner in the law firm that represented this group. That's the connection. And that's not something that's – and, and I think he's added to the impression that he, there's a connection because after the 60-minute expose, he then appointed attorneys to investigate the problem, and they are attorneys who worked for Covington and Burling. And the number of attorneys, I think, is he's appointed 50 attorneys, and uh, there were at least 10 times that many working on the savings and loan scandal, the Keating, the Keating scandal. Right. So obviously um, they're not cracking down on the banks the way they should, and thank goodness we have right. the, the state attorney generals are doing it, but this is a, a national problem. And I think this is just one more example of how Wall Street has inserted itself into government, and Wall Street has actually taken over parts of the government. It owns Treasury. It owns the SEC. It, it, it owns its own parts of the Attorney General's uh, office, too. And, and I think part of that is, is money, and this is another example of how money just buys its way into government, and we need to get rid of that. And it doesn't matter whether it's Republican or Democratic seems to always work. And, you know, you, uh, you've said this before, Chuck, and you're absolutely right. It, the, uh, the, the banks and the, the, the big lobbying organizations, they really don't care who's in office as long as they get to run those parts of the government that they want to, and they'll donate to anybody that will vote their way. And that seems to be what's going on. It went on that way in, in the Bush administration. It went on that way in the Clinton administration, the Nixon administration, and we're getting some of that in the uh, Obama administration. It all comes down to we've got too much yeah. money buying too many votes, and giving too many cushy jobs to people who uh, who leave who leave government service, and uh, unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be a way to stop it. At least not right now. We're going to have uh, Jim Dean on later this week, and Jim's going to oh, talk right. about a way that they have to stop it. They're they're launching a uh, they have launched a national movement to overturn Citizens United, and also to get campaign. Uh, How can you overturn a Supreme Court decision into, uh, in, into the uh, into the law? So. We'll talk about Patrick, that this, later. This is a, as a constitutional question. I mean, how do you overturn a Supreme Court decision? Are, are they bringing a? Are they, are they want to bring a national constitutional amendment, or are I they bringing a case before the Supreme Court? Uh, you have, we'll have to ask him. I do know there is a move to amend. It's an organization called Move to Amend to do just that. And of course, we have amended the Constitution. It's not impossible, but it does work. Right. To, to me, this is another example of how money corrupts the, our U.S. government, no matter who's in office. And you've, you've brought up an outstanding case. There were the same cases in the Bush administration, Clinton, you name it, Nixon all the way back. Money just buys power in this government, and it shouldn't. Well, look, I, I think that there have been people who have, who have been independent and who have not, I mean, to varying degrees. I, I mentioned Robert Kennedy. Mm -hmm. um, maybe that's going way back. We have, as I said, state attorney generals, even Martha Coakley, who is not exactly, in my opinion, you know, a, a great law enforcement type. She's not a great campaigner, that's for sure. <laughs> right. I mean, she's standing up to this. You know, there, there are people who do, you know, yeah. and then there are people who don't. And I think oh. in this case, you mentioned Wall Street. I think they seem to own Obama lock, stock, and barrel. He hasn't done a damn thing to, to deal with these foreclosure crimes, you know, and oh. it is a scandal. Uh, Wall Street does have far too much uh, influence in the Obama administration, same as it did in the Bush administration. Uh, Wall Street seems to be able to own and operate the Department of Treasury and the SEC and the financial uh, 
uh, fraud units within the attorney generals, no matter who's in office. I'm not quite sure how they do that. I know no, we know how to do it in the Obama administration. He just po- appointed them to run the government. Uh, incidentally, our attorney general here in California, Kamala Harris from San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, was the attorney general, the state's attorney general, who stopped the uh, the the sweetheart deal that the SEC was going to give the the banks uh, over the mortgage fraud. She said nothing right. doing, uh, and, and the major thing that she said, in addition to getting $25 billion, which isn't nearly enough, it should be ten times that much, she said that we reserve the right to go back and file criminal charges against some of those people. And and that's where it stands. Some of these people need to go to jail. Well, you know, Patrick, it's a good argument for states' rights. And uh, it sounds like the states are, to varying degrees, handling this, in, 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 and their attorney generals are handling it, in the way that the federal government should be handling it and isn't. Yeah, that's a good point. And, um, and you know, I, I think that, again, on the federal level, there are varying degrees of, of culpability with regard to covering up scandals and crimes. And this, this situation with MERS, I don't think there's any question that these are crimes. I, I mean, agree. they are fraudulently Absolutely. foreclosing on people. And people are and harmed. The, they're, they're harmed, and, they're, and it's a ripoff. I mean, if you have a false signature on a document... That's you know there are challenges to that on on many state le- in many states both in terms of the legality of it and the constitutionality of it. You have to have a real live person sign a document. There are state there are there are local clerks in communities who are pushing this, and that's why the attorney generals on the state level are, are doing it because they say that in order for a uh, transaction to be legal. When it comes to mortgages, you have to have a person come down and put their signature on the paper. You can't have these robo-signatures. I, I and agree. It's, this, it's this group, MERS, that is the main group. They handle millions of transactions. They are the main group. I think they may even be the only group that's actually involved in this. No, there, there's, there's some others that do that, but you're right. They're, they're probably 90%. Unfortunately, they've been winning a lot in the federal courts, which really bothers me. They won in Tennessee. They won in Washington State. There were three three uh, charges of fraud against them there, and they won in the federal courts there. They won in Georgia. They, right. they seem to have a lot of influence in the federal courts, and pro- part of it is also is they can spend millions of dollars on lawyers, and they're being sued yeah, by Covington and Burling. Yeah, they got Covington and Burling. Uh, Eric Holder was a former law firm where he was a partner. That's why you know they're the very same law firm that's going after our poor friend Lenny here. They, they, you're I mean, right. They, they even yeah. managed to get a $50,000 fine levied against one of the attorneys that sued them, which really bothers me, too. It's sort of a uh, slap suit against them. And, again, that was a district court judge in the District of Minnesota. So they're pretty Patrick, powerful. Patrick, if this, if this were George Bush's attorney general, he would have probably been, been in prison by now. I mean, this is a – I think this is a real – you know, you know, to, to run interference for this group for three years and to have your former law firm and then to appoint lawyers from that firm to investigate, can you imagine the howls of rage? Well, it would be howls this, of rage, but I don't think he would have done anything. I think it would be the same as, as everybody else. Just just ignore them, let them do what they want. You know, they should be investigated. Older should be investigated. This whole scandal, should there should be a congressional investigation. Where, I, I want to know where are the Republicans where is um, Daryl Issa? He's the type that investigates these things. I mean, this should this is this to me is something that Congress is supposed to investigate. Has Eric Holder been called before Congress to answer questions about this? Yes, he has. 
and, and what I don't say? know what the, the the testimony was, but I do remember yeah. he was. He yeah. should resign. Well, <laughs> but of course I know you don't think so because it would be not good politically this year. So let's well, just keep everything in place. Too, so, uh, um, well, that's right. beside the point. I, I, I don't know what else. There congressional investigations of this, but I'm not. Yeah. I'm I'm not quite sure why. Uh, well, they're, they're probably for good reason, I, I, and I wonder if Eric Holder refused, you know, answered questions. No, I, I don't I know anything seeing, about that. I remember seeing a picture of him sitting in front of uh, a congressional com- uh, committee. I think it was an ISIS committee, as a matter of fact. It was. I think. But was that the time where he said that he just didn't know? I mean, there was one. I don't know if it was that investigation. It might have been Fast and Furious, but there was some investigation where he was. He he, he, he performed very poorly. It was like he had like a major memory lapse. Which happens to a lot of people of all parties when they get in front of uh, congressional uh, campaigns. Uh, yeah, but we're we, talking about not we're not talking about parties here. We're talking about the chief law enforcement officer in the United States who happens to right now be a uh, holder. Well, I mean, we, we could go back in history and look at other attorney generals. The chief law enforcement officer of the network tells us that it's the end of hour one and we need to take a break. So we're going to do that, okay. and we'll be back in a in, in a minute or so uh, with more of Fairness Radio. Stay tuned. Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm co-hosting with Chuck Morris in Boston. It's April 16th, 2012, and as we mentioned earlier, it's the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation by President uh, Lincoln. And we are the only radio program in America that routinely listens to voices from all sides. We are pushing the boundaries of radio. We broadcast Monday through Friday from 1 to 3 Eastern on CyberStation USA on Blog Talk Radio, and on our radio affiliates. And we'd like to have you on the air, 424-675-6806. Or if you have to, you can email us. You know, if you're sitting uh, at your computer at uh, the office and listening to us in your earphones and you don't want to make a phone call, fairnessradio at gmail.com will get that uh, question to us. Also, we're on Twitter and Facebook, and you can look at our website, fairnessradio.com, where there's petitions you can sign for causes you support and some Hot and heavy blogging. We're going to open up for our radio audience in a few minutes. They're in a news break right now, but right. But I want to introduce you to my friend and my co my colleague, our co-host Chuck Morris. Hi, Chuck. How are you, Patrick? Pretty good. The throat's feeling better. There's nothing like uh, some 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 good cough drops to make that happen. Um, we were just talking about bank fraud and um, why there haven't been congressional investigations and. 
The main congressional investigator is Daryl Issa, and I was looking at his um, campaign contributions, and there are no major campaign contributions from Wall Street, interestingly enough. Isn't so that he, interesting? Yeah. He, now, he did get $97,000 from lawyers and law firms, but other than that, um, most of his money seems to come from pharmaceuticals, the Koch brothers, Honeywell, uh, oil companies, but nothing from um, – well, he did get a small contribution from something called securities and investment, but it would seem to me like he'd be pretty free to go ahead and um, investigate uh, some of these things. So right. I, I would, I'd like to see him do it, and I'd like to see him do it in a way that, that wasn't let's get Obama, but rather that let's get to the bottom of this. Um, he, 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 um, well, hold on, I just dug a little deeper, and maybe we know why. Um between uh, 2009 and 2011, um, no, he really didn't. He didn't take very much money from Wall Street at all, not, not enough to really make a difference. So I'd like to see him get involved in this and see why. Uh, well, I think, I don't know, I think he is. I think that he is trying to do it, Patrick. I mean, he seems to be one of the few congressmen on either side that is very much cut of the cloth of the old Congress where, where they would go after corruption and they would hold hearings. You know, in the 1950s, this was very common. Congress had a lot of hearings. In fact, the um, the, the Kennedy brothers, with Senator Kennedy, that thing, John F., um, actually chaired a hearing that investigated uh, organized crime. You had the, um, the Reese Committee hearings, which investigated foundations. Of course, you had McCarthy. We don't need to go there. But these were important investigations. Congress did this as a matter of routine. They don't seem to be doing that anymore. No, um, he's not, he doesn't. And unfortunately, a lot of the things, that, and I know you may not agree with this, but a lot of things that he's done have been politically motivated, like the the, the hearings on birth control, which, in which he wouldn't allow women to testify and things like that. I do have a list of hearings that he's uh, he has held. Um, he's investigated the IRS um, He's, well, he's investigated the SEC's aversion to cost-benefit analysis. Now, cost-benefit analysis, of course, is something that Wall Street wants done. So in this case, he was holding a, an investigation at the behest of Wall Street. Um, he investigated the GSA. Well, why did he, why, what was the stated reason for that investigation? The, uh, Wall Street wants um, all SEC regulations uh, to have to go through a cost-benefit analysis to make to determine whether or not they would cost Wall Street more than they would gain the taxpayers. And so right. his investigation was, why does the, is the SEC averse to cost-benefit analysis? You know, he could have done why we need cost-benefit analysis, regardless of what Wall Street says, but he didn't. Um, well, I don't know the details on that, but I yeah. mean, I don't think that... I, he doesn't strike me as being the type that's carrying anybody's water. I mean, they all do, to an extent, the, all of these things are political, I mean, the Kennedy family was political when they investigated the mob. I mean, that's, this is, uh, you know, politics plays a role. But the point is that Congress did routinely conduct very healthy investigations of government corruption, of uh, private sector corruption when it reached a, a, a large scale on the national level. And it seems to me that this robo-signing thing is a private sector corruption that is national. There's been no, I mean... And the Attorney General really is the one that's supposed to be in it, but he's not, obviously. Uh, there was one investigation. There was one investigation called uh, investigation on failure to recover the state of housing market mortgage servicing practices and foreclosures. So there was one mm -hmm. investigation. 
The witnesses included the Deputy Comptroller for Large Bank Supervision, the Senior Associate Director of the Division of Consumer and Community Affairs, the General Counsel of the FHA, the um, and then he and then a lot of bankers, um, Bank of America executive, um, Core um, Chase executive, Wells Fargo executive, City executive, and then um, the Honorable Arthur M. Stack, Supreme Court Justice, State of New York. I didn't realize that state Supreme Court justices. Uh, could be called before a congressional campaign. Congress, Congress can call anyone they want. When yeah, did they have? When, when did this investigation take this place? This investigation was March nineteenth, two thousand twelve. Wasn't that long ago? So then it was. It was our Republican Congress. I know yeah, that back was, in the uh, Bush also, in, in the also, Bush years, uh, American yeah, Enterprise right. Institute testified. So great. Uh, if you in want in to the look Bush it up, years, sure. Uh, and in, I, I don't in the know Bush, what, what what came out of. If you wanted to look it up, it's on his website, over, oversight.house.gov. In the Bush years, Barney Frank, and, and I got into this directly, ran interference for the banks, uh, you know, routinely. And he, took, he, a lot of his contributions came from the big banks. And um, that, I think that era is over to an extent, uh, at least in Congress, but it's not over with the uh, Attorney General's office, obviously. Well, um, I, I don't know about Barney Frank and, and where his contributions come from. Did you have... Um, um Information on that? Yeah, well, Before you do that, we have to welcome in our radio listeners from Cyber Station USA. It's Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And it's time to welcome our radio listeners, 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay, Bradenton, Florida, the home of the Republican National Convention this year, KSKQ FM in Ashland, Oregon, always the home of the best Shakespeare festival in the country. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in California. I'm co-hosting with Chuck Morris in Boston. You can be part of the show. Email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com, and after the show, check out our website, fairnessradio.com, and that will give you information on Chuck and me and my and photographs and blogs and pictures of the dog and all sorts of good things. Uh, so we're back. We're back with Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, brought to you by Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com your source of information on how to manage your health and your body without resorting to expensive and possibly toxic drugs. So I was asking you, uh, do you have any information on, on Barney Frank's uh, <coughs> money from the, uh, uh, the banking yeah. sector? You could, take a look at, you could take a look at his FEC filings. It's an issue that's published and covered every term or that he ran by the Boston Globe. Okay. But, uh, and, and I could go through extensive stories about it, but I'll mention one quick anecdote because – the listeners may know I actually was campaigned against him in 2004. And that was that there was a left-wing group in Washington. I think it was called Democracy Something. It was like a kind of a watchdog group that investigated how banks and how big corporations were influencing congressmen. And they actually did a story on how influenced Barney Frank was by banks. And they, they, they it was kind of a slightly humorous story where they showed that he was being feted at a fancy award ceremony and given money and given uh, this big trophy for, for representing the Bankers Association. And, and this uh, organization in Washington w was talking about how inappropriate this is. And it was published in the Boston Globe with a big article and a big picture of Barney. Now, the reason that he did this was because he knew that Barney, or he assumed that Barney was running for a state seat. He didn't even know that Barney had an opponent. 
and it kind of gives a group like that a certain amount of inoculation when one charges them for being partisan. You know, let's go and we'll put this thing, you know, after all, Barney's or one of ours, and no one's going to really say anything. It'll go in and out. We'll have it in our record. That's how that works, Patrick. But what happened with that story is that I responded to it by calling this guy up in Washington and introducing myself to him over the phone and asking him if he could give me more information. And when he heard who I was and that I was running against Barney Frank, he became so flustered and so upset that he hung up the phone. Oh, too bad. Uh, no, but well, it was just an interesting little insight in how these things work. You're, you're right. Uh, Barney took uh, $360,000 last year from securities and investment companies, including Fidelity and Bank of America and New York Life. And he took $133,000 uh, from uh, banks, including the Bank yeah. of America, uh, Weiss Capital, Farallon Capital Management, which is actually in California. Um, and interestingly, yeah. so and, and I, that you know, goes all the way back to when he first started. He's always been a pet of the big banks. Well, he's on the banking I mean, committee. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and I'm just saying that those bad, corrupt days in Congress, I think are over because I think the Republicans are, you know, maybe they, I'm not saying they're any less corrupt, but at least they're less entrenched. I mean, Barney Frank was in there for something like 25 years on that committee. Mm-hmm. You know, so at least the Republicans, they haven't been corrupted yet. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. I mean, they, they, they don't have, you know, they, there is some more of a, a, a tendency to be a little bit more free about this. Uh, but Frank was a creature of the big banks from day one. And, you know, he, ran, he was the main culprit in running interference for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That's a matter of public record. There's a very a pretty well pretty well known YouTube showing his testimony shutting down Bush's Treasury Secretary Snow, who wanted to investigate Fannie and Freddie early on for practices that he said were dangerous and could hurt the economy. And Barney Frank attacked him, saying, "You're just trying to you're going to create problems. You're going to create problems in the stock market. You're going to interfere in Fannie and Freddie's you know affordable housing initiative, and you better be quiet." Well, we'll see. Um, I, you know, obviously, I, I, I haven't followed Barney Frank as closely as you have for obvious reasons. Yeah. I wasn't running against him. So, uh, let's see. Uh, the current chairman uh, is uh, Spencer Bacchus. Let's see what Spencer Bacchus, a Republican, has to do. Well, he took two hundred and seventy-three thousand dollars from from the banks, and he mm-hmm. took one hundred ninety-one thousand dollars from securities and investments. And uh, let's see, he got money from, and, and so you're saying the Republicans are not nearly as as well. He's, he, yeah, he didn't take yeah, as much as Barney did, and and well, I don't know if he's the same, as, actually. No, a little less, and yeah, I'm not sure that he's. Yeah, and I'm not sure that he's probably, you know, influenced by that. I don't know if he is as corrupt and is in the tank as Barney Frank was and other other people back then. Barney Frank was a creature of them. I mean, he was completely in the tank. They would give him these awards. They would—he has a trophy, has a shelf in his home, probably groaning under the weight of all the trophies they gave him. Well, that's—that's—I have to say that—that's that's your opinion, and I'm sure he would. It's not my opinion. That's—that's uh, that's been reported by the Boston Globe. That's not. I mean, this isn't. This is. It comes up, even though it generally is allowed to come up. Even the New Bedford Standard Times, which is totally pro Barney Frank. Has uh, did some fair articles on this, 
during my campaign. Every every term they bring it up, but nobody cares because he's a cult figure. That's in the sense <laughs> it gives inoculation to the Democrats by, for organizations like this Democracy Group to do that because they know that he's fine. He's in a safe seat. So they can bring it up against him and then say, look at us, we're, we're bipartisan, and we go after Democrats too, knowing that he's going to be fine. You know, I'm, I'm noticing that the current Republican chair of that committee uh, received 89% of his campaign contributions from outside the district, $1.19 million, and uh, the the place where the majority of them came from was New York. <laughs> what sounds like New Lizzie, York? It sounds like Lizzie Warren. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, in any case, we have to take <laughs> a break. Outside the uh, state. And when we come back, we're, we're going to be talking to our regular uh, contributor, Dave Johnson. So stay with us. You listen to Fairness Radio. We are back. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. And uh, this segment brought to you by Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com, your source of information on how to manage your health, your body, without resorting to possibly toxic and very expensive drugs. Well, Dave Johnson is a fellow at the Campaign for American Progress. He's our regular progressive contributor on all things domestically economic. And, Dave, you put up a post recently on the SEC settlements with the banks who are caught defrauding their customers and their stockholders, and that post was really upsetting. The fines are a joke. No one goes to jail, and somehow the taxpayers wind up paying for it. How does all that work, Dave? But before I start, uh, first of all, that wasn't me that coughed, but I want to apologize in advance because I have a cold here, and uh, I promise to try to put it on mute before I make any disgusting noises, but my wife is saying she wishes I could do that at home. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I know your wife, and she's a, a, a wonderful, lovely, and usually right, uh, that is a, a totally correct woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There I go. Sorry, I muted it for a second. All right. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think we have a national problem here. Uh, economists will tell you there's an effect. I don't know the name for it, but it's a, uh, it's an important effect. And the SNL regulator, his name is something black. Sorry, cold pills have got my brain here. Uh, says that the problem with fraud and with other crimes that are committed by businesses is that if you do not stop them and hold them accountable, then what happens is they gain a competitive advantage by violating the rules that honest companies and straight brokers don't gain. And what happens is that the fraud and other crimes force others out of business because of the competitive advantage gained when businesses are not held accountable for doing the doing things that break the rules. If you can break the rules and get away with it, well, why not? And if you get that advantage, then everyone else is forced out of business. Well, Joe 
Nocera, I believe is how it's pronounced, that the New York Times had a post about mm-hmm. if uh, if you want to prevent oil spills like Deepwater Horizon, the problem is that BP was getting away with doing all kinds of things that broke the rules for years and years. And it just became regular that, okay, if you get caught, you have to pay a fine. The fine is never as big as the amount of money you make from breaking the rules. And Richard Escow, who I work with at Campaign for America's Future, has a really good example of this, the latest Securities and Exchange Commission Goldman Sachs settlement. He says the latest one is the worst one yet. And this is a post he has at Huffington Post, but mostly at OurFuture.org. Go look for it. Because he describes just one more thing Goldman Sachs got away with. Oh, and they were doing this after, okay? This is recent. This is after all the other deals they've settled. But one more thing that they just do a settlement The bigger picture is we have no prosecutions at all of the fraud that led up to the the financial crisis, no prosecution since. Now compare this under George Bush Sr., okay, when we had the savings and loan crisis, right? They had a thousand agents, a thousand federal agents were investigating this, they prosecuted thousands of people and put more than a thousand people in jail, okay? A thousand agents. Hmm. When Enron happened, okay, and that was under George W. Bush, when Enron happened, they had 100 agents, okay? Federal agents investigating Enron, and they prosecuted some people for that fraud, okay? Uh, finally, now that they have this announcement of, of uh, New York State Attorney General, I think it's Eric Schneiderman, getting involved in the mortgage settlement where he's uh, involved with this investigation they're having. The Obama administration has reluctantly put 50 federal agents on the case, finally, okay, 50, compared to 300 for one company, Enron, and over 1,000 for the SNL crisis, okay? They're putting 50 investigators on now, years later, and who knows? We'll see what kind of budget they get or anything, but there has not been one prosecution. (laughs) And so, I, I understand from the Post that uh, when the banks uh, are fined, and Goldman Sachs is fined, they just deduct it from their income, which means that they, it's essentially a tax break for them. Oh, yeah. You get, you get caught, oh, man, it's going to cost us a little bit of money, but, you know, that's cost of doing business. Yeah, cost so, of doing business. And, of course, the cost yeah. of doing business means it reduces income, which reduces taxes. So the taxpayers actually wind up paying their fines. Right. And... The uh, the five biggest banks are vastly bigger than they were when they were too big to fail, and and you know in the financial crisis and they got the big bailouts. They're much bigger now, as a result of all of this. No new banks have started in the country since the uh, collapse, and that's because there are so many smaller banks struggling as these big giants take over and you know take over the whole business, not just. Uh, the financial Wall Street sector now, you know, they're sweeping the country as smaller banks are forced into trouble. It's it's kind of obvious to me that, you know, and here's the excuse they give, and the excuse might be right, and that is that under George W. Bush, the Securities and Exchange Commission was, was basically made a tool of Wall Street, which is true. Uh, they were, they are not doing any investigations, basically they're working for the big companies, okay? But then o- Obama gets in office, 
and doesn't do anything about that, okay, this is like what happened with Deepwater Horizon when the corrupt Bush regulators, and, you, and when I say the word corrupt, remember there were stories of using cocaine and right. lobbyists hiring yeah. them prosecutes, right. uh, prostitutes, okay? So so we're I'm not using that word, you know, without a little bit of justification, I think. Okay, those people were kept in those jobs by Obama. So this is not a problem of Democrats or Republicans or Bush or Obama or anything. This is a problem of the biggest businesses now having so much power over the government that they, they own the government, and that the government is, is just a tool of these companies and is not in any position to do anything about anything they do to the point where, you know, the SEC doesn't – the SEC was destroying records of violations by these companies, and the prosecutors say this is why they can't prosecute, because the SEC destroyed the evidence. And in the savings and loan crisis, the regulators were at least doing some of their job, and the evidence was still there for prosecutions to happen. So that's my beef today. Sorry for well, the raspy voice. No, I'm going to okay. go on mute and uh, cough. Uh, why do you think the federal government and, and the attorney general and the SEC are so so powerless in front of uh, the Wall Street banks, Goldman Sachs, etc.? They say it's because the SEC and other regulators have for so long been working for these big banks that they have been helping them cover up what they do. And that as they now try to probe into what happened, they are unable to get evidence enough to prosecute, and that they have all these sweetheart settlement deals that are preventing prosecutions. That's what they say. Uh, but it's clearly a government that is owned, bought, and sold by these big banks. And uh, and it's not just the banks. It's other big giant, the big ones, okay? And don't forget that they. it's not about corporate rule or anything, because what they're doing is they're keeping other corporations down. Uh corporations that might compete with them. This is competing using government rather than using the market is what we're seeing, and it's it's becoming so sweeping and obvious that the, I don't know what we're going to do about it, but that's the situation as I see it. Well, let me uh, 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 turn this over to Chuck because I'm sure Chuck has some very interesting points to make about a former law firm. Chuck? Thank, thank you, Patrick. Dave, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, this is... Uh, it really is a scandal, and I think yeah. that Obama is owned lock, stock, and barrel by Wall Street. And when I say Wall Street, I mean the the, the big banks and and others who are really being protected by the government. I think you're right that um, they are almost we, we're almost reaching a certain tipping point where you have select multinational corporations that are literally becoming a part of the government. Uh, Mussolini had had actually formalized. Uh, I, I'd say the government's system. becoming part of them, but <laughs> same difference. They're all yeah. in it together, and and you have a kind of a, a a collusion between the government and the corporation. I mean, in Mussolini's case, he literally replaced the elected uh, legislature with what he called a council of corporations, and he gave monopoly powers to certain select corporations over their competitors, and that's. Uh, you know that's sort of the model that I think we're moving toward. I would argue that well, it's to the it left. We could have that argument, but I want to bring up one particular aspect of it, and that is um, what I call, and I posted on my blog site, a Whig manifesto, the Obama foreclosure scandal. 
And this has to do with this group, MERS. Are you familiar with them? Mortgage Electronic yeah, Registration yeah. System. Sure, they that's control, the robo-signing. Yeah. Exactly. And, they could, they, they, and that's they, what, uh, when I mentioned Schneiderman, that's, this settlement is about that, yeah. Yeah, and they, they're being sued by attorneys general on the state level by, I think, at least a dozen states, including Massachusetts. Um, they are responsible for the, the lion's share of the robo-signings and other practices with regard to an, autom- an automation of foreclosure, automation of mortgage transactions, including foreclosures. Um, And what I've discovered, and by the way, my source on this is a left-wing source, that being the radio program Ring of Fire. I know you're familiar with them, Robert Kennedy. Um, Mm -hmm. That uh, that Attorney General Eric Holder was a partner in a law firm, Covington and Burling, that represented MERS and defended them for many years leading in the Bush years. And um, as Attorney General of the United States, he hasn't done anything to investigate MERS. Now, no, wait, he, hold on. Just to be clear on that, he was a partner in a law firm, but he himself didn't handle these cases. Yeah, but he but was a partner a, in a firm. Wait a minute. This, and the firm, yeah. the firm made a lot he, of money off it, yeah. They sure did. And, and he being a, partner, a partner, he made a lot of money off it, yeah. He made money on it, and being a partner means that he was in a decision-making position and that this law firm, which continues to run interference, uh, basically quashed attempts by investigators to look into the scandal in the years leading up to Obama. And now as Attorney General, he hasn't done anything until 60 Minutes last October did an expose on MERS. And that forced, and the robo-signings, and that forced... uh, Holder to take action. What he did was he assigned a couple of investigators. I don't know the number, but uh, many, many of whom, <laughs> yeah, many. and many of many of whom were lawyers for Covington and Burling. He also uh, ordered the FBI to investigate in operating as partners with. Um, I'm, I'm looking at my article right now. The MBA Mortgage Banking Association. In other words, that the FBI would only take the cues from the Mortgage Banking Association, which represents MERS and the corrupt banks. So what you have here, Dave, is a cover-up. There isn't anyone oh, going to yeah. go and to jail, just, and they should go to, to jail. Be, to be clear, the origins of MERS, M-E-R-S, that this is about setting up an automated system for registering mortgages, and part of the point of that was to bypass the states and counties so right. that they didn't have to pay the the fees to the states and counties for registering these mortgages. So even the the basis of it, a lot of people saying, was a fraud right there. Yeah. And it saved okay. the banks billions and billions of dollars. And what they did was they started processing. It enabled them to process many, 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 many more mortgages than normal, faster and with fewer yeah. fees. And then they could then bundle these mortgages up into these uh, uh, collateralized debt obligations. Now, let me back they up also and, and charge state, the homeowners the fees anyway. Yeah, oh, right. And they also let me state, let me state some of the justification. Not. Some of the justification for this. Now you hear about Wall Street and financial innovation, and they're saying that by taking these mortgages and bundling them up in this process and selling them off to others, including Fannie and Freddie, but others, mm-hmm. uh, enabled them to then get the mortgages off their books and so they could make more mortgages. Exactly. And they're saying this was a financial innovation that 
broadened the base of the mortgage market so that there were more mortgages available to many, many more people. So this is an innovation that expands credit. Now, that's their their rationale on this. And in some ways, that could have worked if they also hadn't been bribing the ratings agencies to give these things AAA credit rating when they knew they didn't have AAA and all of the other things that happened. It might have been a way to make credit more available to more people. And, and so there's some justification there as, as a broadening of, of the availability of credit to more people. So that's that's just so that's there. Now, MERS, the other thing then that happened, just to, to get it there, is that when uh, the foreclosures all started happening, when people st- when these mortgages started going bad, rather than process a legitimate foreclosure one at a time, the normal way to do it, right? Instead, they hired people to just do a stamp and a forged signature on each of these documents. Oh, right. the other thing, they didn't have the paperwork, the actual paperwork of who owned the house. And remember, they're transferring the mortgage from one financial institution to another and all around. And nobody knows who owns the house, but they're going to foreclose on it anyway. And what happened was they wound up foreclosing on people who had paid off their loans. They wound up foreclosing on people in the military, which is illegal, because they're in Iraq. All kinds of things, and it was called was called robo-signing. Okay, go ahead. Exactly. Dave? So so this was fraud, and there, yeah. there were all these instances of fraud, so the states started looking into it, and some of the states said, let's, let's get some justice for some of the people in our states, like Schneiderman in New York, and others said, let's put together a big settlement so we can get a pool of money to help people, but let's get this, you know, let's get past this, let's not worry about prosecuting or anything, you know, let's just get past it. But part of the justification for that is that if we really pursue this, this is so bad that all of these banks are going to go out of business because they were all so bad and the fines and penalties and the money they're going to have to pay in restitution is so much, they'll all go out of business and our entire economy will collapse, so let's get past it another way. Yeah, no, okay. I, I agree with everything you've said, Dave. And also, as far yep. as mi- the, the issue with mirrors, of course, is that they began to do this. They began to robo-sign and engage in these automated transactions to deal with to paper over mortgage uh, defaults um, with Eric Holder as the uh, partner in Burlington and, and um, Covington and Burling, which was a law firm that defended them in all of their lawsuits against them yeah. by the don't state around the country. And don't leave out don't leave out all the other people who have loved Wall Street so much. And here we are yeah, now, Dave, a few years Dave, later. As far as the the big foreclosure settlement, you're right about that. I mean, this has been held yeah. up as a great thing by the administration, but the fact is right. that it did, it did basically give you know mortgage holders who had been defrauded peanuts, and at the same time yeah. it shielded the banks from lawsuits. And now you have a situation where there is an increase in foreclosures because the banks think that they're free of future lawsuits. Now, why is this? I mean, don't you think this is an issue that... The penalties and fines, okay? They're they're supposed to come up with these restitutions, but it turns out there's loopholes in the way it's written so that they can put the penalties and fines on things like pension funds and others that that bought the mortgages and stuff, okay? So they're the ones that are going to have to take the hit, not the banks. 
it's just it's just beautiful in the scope of what we're seeing at this point. Right. How, no, how corrupt it is. They've set up a separate fund, and they're going to settle out these things with peanuts. Yep. It's kind of like what yep. happened with Travelers Insurance and Elizabeth Warren, but we can get into that at another time. Look, Any, Dave, um, the... Uh, well, I wanted to ask and don't Dave. don't keep saying one more thing. Don't keep saying holder because don't forget this is entirely enabled also by the other party too. No, 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 who no. Also Dave, yes, gets but, huge but amounts of money from Wall Street and the banks they all, too. They all do, but I'll just say make two yeah. comments on that. The real scandal really has happened with regard to the robo signing issue becoming a national scandal on Obama's watch and and Holder well, has done yeah, nothing. Wait a minute. No. Holder has done nothing. Yes. And, as no, and, and, and hold, the Bush Well, it was going on, but I'm saying that nothing. the issue of, of the robo-signings in response to the mortgage meltdown and and Holder, who was a, a partner again in Covington and Burling, has not only done nothing in the three years he's been in office, but once he had to do something because of the very negative exposure, he's appointed Covington and Burling lawyers to investigate. Now, that, to me, is a and national scandal. 50, and only 50 federal agents. Yeah. So, I mean, look, this is yeah, an issue that should be brought up in this campaign. Yeah. Now, I don't know if, if, yeah. if Mitt Romney would have been any but, better, yeah, but, but then, we don't know but that. Then look, Chuck, look where we are. Mitt Romney, it's not like that you can say that, that Holder is bought by Wall Street. Mitt Romney is Wall Street, you know? It's no, like actually, he's not Wall Street. in the scope of it, what we're dealing now, with here. I, as a, uh, Obama was Wall Street when he was elected by Wall Street contributions, and he's he put as you say, Dave, he put in office key Wall Street figures, including Timothy Geithner. That's a right. Wall Street presidency, and that's where, where we are right now. Following, you know, following, and and remember, their justification is that things are so bad that if we don't do what Wall Street needs, the whole economy will collapse. Don't forget, this was enabled by Bush. Doing no, the same thing. You, you know who enabled it, Dave? We, Patrick and I interviewed this author, Michael Schumann. He's the author of a book called Local Dollars, Local Cents. I don't know if you're familiar with it. He's, he's a definitely nope. a, quote, progressive. He's liberal. He points out that the problem goes back to the founding of the Federal Trade Commission in 1938. And what they That's did was they, yeah, and they made sure that local, that all Pension transactions and investments, all major investments would have to go through Wall Street by monopoly, cutting out any possibility or any development of local and regional uh, stock exchanges. Right, right. And, and they require the ratings agencies to have a certain right. level and all stuff like that. And yeah, also they required, that they required that brokers of major uh, financial investment transactions have to go through New York. They would have to go through Wall Street. What it did was it gave Wall Street a national monopoly on investment. And this was done right. during the Franklin Roosevelt administration. And the, you know who the first chairman of the FTC was? FTC? No. Joseph P. Kennedy. Ha! <laughs> okay. I mean, here's government trying to step in and do something about absolute corruption, and then the the people with all the wealth and power are so powerful that then they can take that government effort to try to fix things, and turn it into a government effort to to enforce their monopoly. Well, look, I mean, Michael Schumann, right, throughout his book, he talks about the, the solution being to remove this monopoly from Wall Street, which has been in place since 1938, and to allow the development of local and regional stock exchanges. 
so that people okay, can listen. invest in local and regional corporations and so that local states like Massachusetts, if we had a Boston Stock Exchange, which had real power, our state could invest its pension fund, it could invest its capital, and local business people, investors, can invest in local corporations, which would keep the capital in our state and it would build our state's infrastructure. Instead of having well, it go to Wall Street, which is not loyal to the United States, it's become international. You're describing this Jobs Act they just passed. It's named Jobs, and it, the J-O-B-S stands for who knows what. It's got nothing to do with jobs. It has two parts of it. One part is what you're saying in some ways, where they're going to allow sales of stock through uh, crowdfunding. Uh, it, it's basically what you're describing in some ways. It takes it back to where you can do little little. Mm -hmm fundings of companies locally, even in a city and stuff. But the problem is that they gained it, so it's entirely under the control of Wall Street, and all it really does is it simply deregulates an awful lot of Wall Street so they can yeah, do right. almost anything they want, and they made it so it applies to companies up to a billion dollars. I mean, can you imagine a little a local exactly. grocer trying to raise some money and, and he's well, trying to compete right. with no, it? It sounds yeah. like they picked it, but, but the point that yeah. is made is that uh, – Really, in the free market system, you should have local and regional stock exchanges. Even Europe has this. You know, the United States, we only have one, which is in Wall Street. I mean, we have, there are technically others, but their powers are severely limited. You know, in Europe, they have bursars. Even local communities, like, for example, the offshore <laughs> islands off of Great Britain have their own bursar, those being the Jersey and Guernsey Channel Islands. And they're very successful. They make sure that local investment goes into their own little islands and uh, that the local government makes sure that their pension funds and everything else is invested locally. Uh, we don't have that we in are, this country. We are, are out of time for the segment, and, and I promised uh, Dave that uh, we would uh, break now for his for his throat. Dave, uh, is, is your does your throat need a rest? Uh, yeah, I think so. I'd like to keep going on this, but I'm kind of full of cold pills and stuff, so maybe it's better pick it up. I can do it later this week, maybe. Okay, all right, uh, we'll talk right. about that. So why don't we take a, a quick break, and, and this is Dave Johnson, the Campaign for America's Future, that you can follow Dave at ourfuture.org. You can also follow him on his own blog, seeingtheforest.com. And, uh, Dave, thank you very much. Thanks and a lot, Dave. Better. Thanks for having me on, you guys. Bye. All right. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with more of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We are on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and on our radio station affiliates. We uh, we are sponsored this segment by Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com, which is your source of information on how to manage your body and your health without using toxic drugs or expensive drugs. And, and I just want to say, when you go to, to Barton Publishing, uh, they don't 
sell cures. They don't sell drugs. They're not going to promise you that you're, you're going to get up out of your sick bed and, and go run a marathon. But what they do is they have commissioned doctors and experts to put together books and booklets and, and other information packages relating to specific problems that you might encounter in your body and how to use naturally available ingredients so like apples in some cases or vinegar in other cases, uh, uh, naturally available ingredients to manage those processes, to, to manage those problems in your body. Now, this isn't a cure, but it's a healthful way to manage problems within, within your body. And, and, you know, it works for, for most people. It may not work specifically for you. There's no guarantees, not a cure, but it certainly works in our experience. Both uh, Chuck and I have used uh, their, their products, and we find that it does exactly work. So when you go to www.bartonpublishing.com, you'll see a whole list of problems you can have with your body, arthritis and gout and, and overweight and you name it, it's there. Click on one of those and you'll see a, a list of publications. And you can order those publications and it's really inexpensive. It's probably less than you spend for five or six prescribed pills, uh, the way the, if you look at the cost of, of, of a medical prescription these days. You order it, you, t- you put it in your shopping cart and up will pop a little coupon box and you write the word fairness in that coupon box and you'll get an immediate 50% discount and then the uh, material will be sent to you immediately. Now you can, it gets sent to you uh, immediately by email as an attachment but you can order it as a hard copy book if you want to but if you want it right now Barton Publishing does that for you. They give you immediate information on how to manage your, your body and your health without using toxic drugs. So I, we just can't say enough about it. That's www.bartonpublishing.com, and the coupon code is FAIRNESS. Uh, Chuck, before we continue on, I want to just let everybody know what's coming up this week. And sure. that is um, tomorrow, of course, is, is politics and religion, or religion and politics, or frequently just religion. And we have two authors coming up, or two, two not well, one's an author and one, one isn't, um, who are going to talk about non-Christian ways to God. And the first one is Andrea Dilley, who's, um, who's, who asks the questions, can doubt be a path to God? She's written a fabulous book called Faith and Other Flat Tires, in which she explores how not believing in God and, and doubting or doubting her beliefs in God led her to faith. And then in hour two, we're going to talk to Oliver Deven, uh, Oliver Dehum, and Oliver Dehum, who's a, a former um, a Marine uh, network uh, television executive, has found uh, a way to God that involves love. So those are going to be two very different conversations for us, and we invite everybody to be part of those conversations. Of course, you know how to do it, fairnessradio.com um, or um, 425-675-6806. September 18th, Jim Dean is going to return. Of course, Jim Dean is head of uh, Democracy for America, uh, brother to uh, Governor Howard Dean, and he's going to talk about overturning the Citizens United uh, uh, Supreme Court decision, and then um, we have a in, in part two, uh, hour two, and Wednesday. We have a very interesting um, spokesperson, David Rudick. Now, David is a big-time entertainment lawyer in California and Hollywood, but his passion is reducing the cost of health care, and he has started a program to do just that. It's not political at all, but uh, you'll find it very interesting. Thursday, Tom Palkin will be with us. He, of course, is the chairman of the, of the Texas um, 
Workforce Commission, former uh, Republican uh, Party chair in, Cal- in uh, Texas and former uh, Nixon White House staffer. He's going to talk to us about jobs. And Nancy Gibbs will be with us on Thursday. She's got a book on the President's Club, A History of Presidents in the United States, and why this group of people, all men right now, group of people form the most exclusive club in the world. Friday, Walter Strauss will, will be with us. And Walter Strauss has been on the show before. He's one of the, the nation's best guitar players. He went to Mali. And he went to Mali to learn to play the oud and other um, West African musical instruments. And needless to say, if you've been following the news, while he was in Mali, there was a coup. <laughs> and, uh, right, the Atarag tribe. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. And he's going to tell I think he got out maybe the day before uh, the uh, the attack on the palace. But anyway, he's going to tell us about what he learned there. He's going to bring some music from Mali with us. It's going to be uh, quite a show. So that's what's coming up this week, Chuck. Patrick, now, make sure, please make sure I get a copy of the President's Club. Um, yes, yes uh, definitely. I haven't got one yet either. Right? Yeah, because so, I, 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 I like to read those. those I, I yeah, know you do. That's one reason yeah, why I booked you. I said, book. you know, when I, when I saw this book, I said, Chuck will love this. Oh, yeah, you bet. You bet. Okay, well, I will uh, call and just make sure about that. So we've got a hot week coming up, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking of presidents, oh, yeah, anyway, what? No, did you have something you wanted to bring up? No, no, go ahead. Um, you know, we've heard often said on on this program, mainly by Dave, it basically reminds me that um, taxes were much higher during the Eisenhower administration than they are today. Mm-hmm. Um, I've argued that the reality is that taxes were not, it wasn't a matter of more taxes being paid. Uh, but uh, I've come across some interesting quotes, which gets into why taxes actually were lowered. They were lowered by none other than President John F. Kennedy. And um, I've got some quotes that I thought were revealing of that. Okay. Uh, Kennedy had somewhat of a recession, and he was thinking of how to handle that in terms of how to stimulate the economy. And on February 6, 1961, Kennedy says, quote, I have asked the Secretary of the Treasury to report on whether present tax laws may be stimulating in undue amounts the flow of American capital to the industrial countries abroad. So he was concerned with capital accumulation, then on the April 20th, about a month, two months later, he says, quote, in meeting the demands of war finance, the individual income tax moved from the selective tax imposed on the wealthy to the means by which the great majority of our citizens participate in paying. When the economy slowed, Kennedy's stimulus plan was to lower taxes on everyone, as he suggested in a news conference November 20th, 1962. It is a paradoxical truth. The tax rates are too high and tax revenues are too low, and the soundest way to raise the revenues in the long run is to cut the tax rates now. Cutting taxes now is not to incur a budget deficit, but to achieve the most prosperous, expanding economy, which can bring a budget surplus. January 17, 1963, Kennedy stated, Lower rates of taxation will stimulate economic activity and so raise the levels of personal and corporate income as to yield within a few years an increased, not a reduced, flow of revenues to the federal government. In today's economy, fiscal prudence and responsibility call for tax reduction, even if it temporarily enlarges the federal deficit. Why reducing taxes is the best way open to us to increase revenues. Anyway, that's, um, that's Kennedy's uh, tax cut. 
the largest tax cut since uh, World War II, and I think probably the largest tax cut since. Um, he goes on to say, our tax system still siphons out of the private economy too large a share of personal and business purchasing power and reduces the incentive for risk, investment, and effort, thereby aborting our recoveries and stifling our national growth rate. So, Patrick, I think that that answers the question in terms of why taxes went down, at least on the books, uh, from the Eisenhower term. Let's, let's see. Uh, that, what year was that? The comment I just gave was yeah. at his annual message, January 21st, 1963. Okay. And I noticed that taxes as a share of, uh, that is total direct revenue to the government in 1963, dropped from a high of about 29% to about 24%, and then by 1965 they were down to about 24%. So it but didn't the work. economy was stimulated. You know, well, the 60s the, were, were a very The U.S. government didn't go up. No, it didn't, but the economy uh, did. The point is that it led to a, you know, it, it, there was not a recession. It, the 60s were, were financially a boom time in, in this economy. Uh, Kennedy says on September 18, 1963, a national address, he says, quote, a tax cut means higher family income and higher business profits and a balanced federal budget. Every taxpayer and his family will have more money left over after taxes for a new car, a new home, new conveniences, education, and investment. Every businessman can keep a higher percentage of his profits in his cash register or put it to work expanding or improving his business. And as the national income grows, the federal government will ultimately end up with more revenues. But did that happen? It did, yes, well, it did. The federal government didn't, didn't get more well, revenues. Well, for a couple of years it didn't, but eventually the, it caught up. And because of, there was an expansion in the job market and the jobless rate dropped substantially, you ended up with more income tax because there were more incomes to tax. So, yes, the government eventually did get revenue back, except they didn't get it through taxation without production. In other words, the taxation was pegged upon production. And, you know, this is also true with, we talked about the unions of Germany and Konrad Adenauer. One of the laws that he put in place in Germany with regard to unions is that they would only be allowed to negotiate wage increases and um, benefit increases pegged upon the actual growth of the company. In other words, they couldn't go beyond what the company could do to the degree that they would put a company out of business, which is what happens sometimes here. And I think that that same philosophy was in place with Kennedy's tax cuts. In other words, he wanted to make sure that the economy could actually absorb the taxes with, you know, in relation to the amount of production that was occurring in the economy, not more. You know, he understood that you, you know, by raising taxes or by keeping high taxes, that was not concomitant with the amount of production the economy was generating itself, then it would end up being regressive, and the government I, I would actually point. ultimately lose. Yeah, yeah I, I hear your point. Um, I'd like to, and I haven't been able to find it, to, to see uh, uh, GDP tracked against uh, tax revenue as a percentage of GDP. I see that uh, tax revenue as a percentage of, of GDP has gone up and down quite a bit. Sure. Um, 1950, our GDP was $294 billion. In 2000, our GDP was uh, um, $9 trillion. 
$963 billion. So GDP has gone up quite a bit uh, since then. Right, but then you also have to allow for inflation. Yeah, that's right. These aren't in constant dollars, so you're right there. So I, I don't really have the the, the data to talk about uh, this. Well, I, uh, I only bring it up, Patrick, yeah. because Kennedy was a tax cutter. He understood he was a conservative, obviously, in his economic outlook. That's for sure. I mean, you can't get more conservative than this. Mm-hmm. I haven't. I don't think Reagan even went that far. Um, and I think that Kennedy is the model. I mean, I'm going to write an article about this in a sense saying that this is the model for Mitt Romney to look at. Um, in a sense, he responded to what looked to be in his first, when he became in office, a possible recession. His response was to cut taxes, and it resulted in a boom. The 1960s and the early 1970s were among the most productive years in the history of this country at that time. Hmm. Uh, let me see. Total, yeah, 1970, we, uh, the GDP went up by a factor of five. And, again, these are not constant dollars. Right. And then, yeah, so, but again, I'd like, I don't have the data to, to, to really judge what you're saying. Um, I'll, you know, I, I hear what I you're saying, and I, I take it at face value. I think it's been generally viewed that the 1960s and early 70s were a boom time in this country. Well, economic. from the GDP, it looks like it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I definitely. mean, in terms of growth, expansion of jobs, expansion of corporations, of, of businesses, the economy generally yeah. a reduction in, in unemployment. I mean, th- yeah. these were very good times. Yeah. All, all, all the way up to about 2000 when it, everything started to go the, uh, go south. Well, there were a few blips. There were a few blips of. There were a few problems in between there. I mean, the mid seventies, yeah. you had the stag, what was called stagflation, stagflation. Yeah. and I think in the early Reagan years, there was some, there was a recession. So I mean, it wasn't you know it wasn't a perfect you know trajectory. Yeah. So it, what you're saying deserves uh, careful analysis. Um, uh, I don't have the, the the data to do the analysis. I, I'm looking at uh, total tax revenue, U.S. Uh, 1950 to to uh, 2015 projection, and there's an odd thing in there, and I don't quite understand it. Uh, when George Bush came in, he, we had the Bush tax cuts. Revenue to the federal government from taxes plunged. It went from 38% of GDP down to 30% of GDP, and then it went right. back up again to 30%. Well, that's of GDP. exactly the point that Ken- the same thing happened with Kennedy. At and first, it, it plunged, plunged again. and then it went back <laughs> right. up. Well, the point is that well, that's right. What was going on there? There were other factors, but the the, the principle but that was yeah, but the principle that Kennedy articulated, and I think it also has occurred many other times. Same thing happened with the Reagan tax cut. Same thing happened with the Warren Harding tax cut, which led to a prosperity in the twenties. Is that by leaving more capital in the hands of those who create capital, you eventually, you know, and not taxing beyond what the economy, a reflection of what the economy is producing, the economy will eventually expand itself and that the government will eventually take in more revenue yeah. because there will be more revenue to take in. In other words, that, it's a much more yeah. organic view of taxation rather well, than simply coming in and raising taxes at a time when the, the entire, you know, production is not increasing. Well, that's a supply-side theory, and, and yeah. uh, I, I think I see a, a, uh, one of the reasons why it worked well from 1950 to 2000, and then in 2000 it stopped working. And, and let me just repeat this again. 
of total direct revenue to the U.S. government reached a peak in 2000, just before uh, George Bush was elected. Immediately after George Bush was elected, it plunged 10, 10, 10%. Then it went back up again, and then it plunged again 20%. And, and as George Bush went out of office, it was uh, down at the same levels that you found it in 1959. And I think the right. difference between the, the 1950 through 2000 and after 2000 is that around is that the economy was internationalized. And the point that you're making about about if you tax a bit capitalist uh, investors less, they'll invest more. That worked until the, until the economy became internationalized. And then in about 2000, when the uh, the internationalization of the economy was in full force. What you found was that if you taxed investors less, they did invest it, but they didn't invest it in the United States. They invested it abroad, which is why we lost 6 million jobs in the period between 2000 and 2008 during the Bush administration when, the te- when there was a tax break for actually for exporting jobs, one that we haven't quite gotten rid of yet. So I right. think that's a big difference. And I think supply side may have worked okay from 1950 to 2000, but we're in a different world now. It doesn't work. It didn't work, and the numbers really show that it didn't work, and we have to actually look at a different way to do it. We've talked about different ways here, and that is to arrange the tax system so that you do get a tax break if you create jobs in this country, but if you export things, if you import things into this country made elsewhere, you you don't get a tax break for that. And I think that's the big difference, and then the numbers really show it. In 2000, the the tax uh, receipts to the U.S. government just plunged. And then again in 2006, they plunged even even more. But up well, until that Patrick time, was... you're, you're entirely correct that there was a steady increase in, uh, despite tax cuts or tax increases, there was a steady increase in tax revenue. So we're in a different world now. We have to we have to to look at it well, uh, public, in a, in a much different policy. way. But uh, you make I mean, a very good point, and it's and also I think Kennedy about. Kennedy introduced he was right on the economy, and he understood as you say, supply-side economics as a way to uh, help uh, capital accumulation. But at the same time, Kennedy also introduced the poison of free trade. Uh, well, and that's, that's what's led to the internationalization. He's right. No, you're absolutely right. right. And by the yeah. time 2000 rolled around, free, and the, the dot-com boom was over, the, the, the um, communication boom was over, which kind of covered things up a little bit, yeah. you had the effects of free trade in place, and it's something that built over a 30-year period. It wasn't just George Bush. It had to do with NAFTA and GATT. Oh, no, oh absolutely, had, you're right. It had and to do Clinton with a lot, a lot of flames of there. Right. I mean, the whole free trade movement basically did exactly as you said, and the solution to that, as you say, it's a public policy issue. It's something that, you know, there needs to be put in place policies that help capital accumulation inside the United States and discourage it overseas, uh, and and it's not, but but the answer isn't to raise taxes. That's only going to further the present structure of internationalism because you're going to have a bigger flight of capital and uh, production. We're out of time. We can't uh, we can't solve right. this. But I thank you for bringing it up. Those are very cogent points and worth a lot of consideration. Uh, that's it for today. You've been listening. You've been listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick from Blog Talk Radio, Cyber Station USA, and our affiliates. Check out our website, fairnessradio.com. You can continue the conversation there, and you can also see blogs, photos, and petitions for causes you believe in. Sign up for our Twitter feed and check us out on Facebook. Good night, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow. Good night, everybody. And don't forget to stay tuned for Mike Siegel on, on Cyber Station USA.
Great.